0: Внимание, говорит и показывает Москва.
1: Федор, мы что, Путин по Никто не в Это Навальный. В Я уже раз раз раз, работу, а сотрудники безопасности с вас с
0: новым веком. The long struggle over the controversial Russian-led Nord Stream 2 pipeline project appears to be entering its endgame. The United States has abandoned, at least for the moment, its plans to sanction the $11 billion project. The pipeline's operator said this week that the first of the project's two lines has been filled with gas that is ready for export, but the Russian-led company is still awaiting clearance to start sales to Europe. Russia is hinting that it won't ship European consumers extra gas to ease the current energy crisis unless it is granted regulatory approval to start shipments from Germany and the European Union. And Russia's ambassador to the EU has reportedly set a deadline for the project to be certified. And Annalena Breyerbach, the co-chair of the German Green Party, which will almost certainly be in the next government, has called that blackmail. So is Nord Stream 2 a done deal or can this project which many fear will lead to corruption, cronyism, and deeper European dependence on Russian energy, still be stopped. Stick around because today we have just the guests to answer those questions and more. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the U.K. McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is somebody who's been deeply embedded in the politics of Nord Stream 2 for quite a while. Dr. Benjamin Schmidt is a Postdoctoral Research Fellow at Harvard University and former European Energy Advisor at the U.S. State Department. Welcome back to the podcast, Ben.
1: Hi, Brian. It's great to be here. And let me just say, as I always say to you, longtime fan. I don't know if I'm the biggest fan, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a big fan. And I was walking down the street this morning. I heard people talking about the power vertical, and they referred to you as the father of Eurasian geopolitics and <laughs> and I, I don't know
0: if you've heard that uh normally on the streets but that's what people are saying I have not heard that on the streets but if they're saying that on the campus of Harvard University uh, that, right. that, that 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 only makes me happy so well keeping with this informal tone Ben it's just the, there's just the two of us today so I figured we'd keep this casual sure. just two friends hanging out in a DC or a Cambridge bar talking about a pipeline as as one does um so I is, I mean, let's start this out really broad. I mean, is Nord Stream a done deal? It certainly feels that way to me. Or are there still roadblocks? Um, I mean, I'm looking at the German coalition negotiations and what the Greens are going to, you know, what pound of flesh the Greens are going to take to support that coalition. Um, Russia is certainly trying to create the, the impression that this is a fait accompli. Um, judging from the ambassador's comments this week, how did you read the Russian threats and, and, and response, uh, the, 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 green party co-chair? Well, let's, let's face
1: it, Brian. I mean, you know, I, I, I mentioned podfather and there's, uh, a, a, you know, a Don Corleone sort of quote that I'd like to read you from Russian, ple- uh, president Vladimir Putin, who is, uh, always coming out with these. He said, this cannot be, un- uh, this cannot be done using the uh, gas transport system of Ukraine, referring to. Right. Uh continued gas transit quote which has not been repaired for decades and something there can burst there at any moment with unfavorable consequences for everyone both for the transit side and for the consumer in the EU
0: So <laughs> well, I mean po- it's a po-
1: shame po- you know nice pipeline you have there shame if something would happen to it
0: yeah Putin has said that probably from his office where he works only by gaslight I understand
1: that's <laughs> right that's right.
0: But but is this a done deal? Is this? I mean, it look. It certainly feels this way to me. Um, you've been tracking this really closely for a long time. You've been actively involved in this, trying to get it stopped. I mean, I you know we're um, everybody familiar with this issue knows your work that you've done for the United States government on this. W- how do you see this now? Because it looks like it's done to me.
1: Well, look, Brian. I started in government two weeks before Nord Stream Two was announced. I had the Nordic Baltic portfolio. Uh, for energy security at the State Department. And two weeks after I started in that small uh, regional, but important regional portfolio, Nord Stream 2 is announced in the rest of the history. So I've been uh, on the case for seven straight years, like it or not. Um, and I think that even now, even after the physical construction of Nord Stream 2 is complete, uh, completed, which happened uh, both uh, uh, last spring for the first line and uh, this fall for the second line, I think there is still a chance that this, does not come into operation uh, in the long term. It certainly can still be stopped and, and probably should still be stopped uh, with a, a mix of transatlantic sanctions and regulatory uh, roadblocks. And I, I think that there are opportunities. Now, uh, I am also realistic in the sense that with the uh, you know the, the market conditions that we've seen over the past several months with Russia has certainly contributed to, which we can certainly talk about today. Um, it puts Europe and the United States in a much more difficult position perhaps than even six months ago uh, when uh, when sanctions were being discussed by the Biden administration, ultimately not used to
0: their fullest extent. Yeah, now let's talk let's, – let's unpack this because you say these are the two ways this can be stopped. These have always been the two ways this could be stopped, right. transatlantic sanctions – and regulatory roadblocks, um, transatlantic sanctions—that—that that, uh, call me crazy, but I'm not going to bet my mortgage if that's going to happen, or, or my 401k, or, or anything else in my bank account. Um, but you, I mean, it—it—it it, it, it is possible. I mean, the Biden administration did not say this will never happen. They got a national security exemption for the sanctions against right. the Nord Stream Two pipeline company. The—the the reasoning in the administration behind that, as far as I understand it, is they were there were concerns that this would hurt. The bilateral relationship with with germany um germany just had an election um we're still waiting to see which what what government is going to c- come into power at the moment it looks like one led by the social democratic party um with the greens and the free democrats now the so a large portions of the german social democrats are to put it very kindly, supportive of Nord Stream 2. But the party funny. as a whole, but the, the whole party isn't. And the Greens certainly are not, and the Free Democrats are not. So what are the chances of maybe a change in attitude in the German government? That's one. And how, do you see these sanctions potentially being revived um, in a way that does not harm the U.S.-German bilateral relationship?
1: I, I mean, I think I think they can, and, and they they probably should be. And the reason for that is... The the outcome, as you said, there was never an agreement that said explicitly sanctions uh, will never be used. And that's partially because I don't think that that's a uh, a position that any administration could take when Article I power rests from the uh, legislative branch yeah. on creating and executing these sanctions. We've already seen the U.S. House of Representatives uh, Foreign Affairs Committee um, pass uh, additional sanctions now – uh, on Nord Stream AG itself and, and other entities related with it uh, that do not have a waiver associated with that. I would anticipate in the next few weeks the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will pass that as well. And we're very likely to see that uh, just like we did in 2019 and 2020 coming down towards the end of December in the National Defense Authorization Act and and dropping a major policy turning point once again just at the end of the year and just before... Uh, the winter really kicks off uh, in Europe.
0: So the, so they could basically kick this back to the White House, effectively, and say, we dare you to do the national security exemption again? Is that is that what, how this would play out? Well, there, there is no exemption in this one.
1: This, this one actually removes the, the potential uh-huh. exemption. So it would tie the administration's hands, then, basically. Effectively. And, and there is a scenario in which you could still do that, but the threshold is much, much higher. Um, and given the ample examples over the past few months— of Russia making explicit statements that make it very clear that they're intending to use Nord Stream 2 as a geopolitical weapon, which you and I first talked about on one of the much earlier uh, editions of the Power Vertical podcast. Uh, So that's really what we see coming down. It's going to be very difficult to not use those in that case.
0: Do you think, I mean, is there a way to finesse these sanctions so they don't harm U.S.-German bilateral relations? Because that was... The motivation of the administration, according to my understanding and conversations I've had, this wasn't some concession to Russia. This was this was a recognition that the bilateral relationship with Germany is really important. That there are there is a significant you know, uh, faction of the German body politic that that really cares about this project. Um, whether we agree with that or not is immaterial. They that this is a fact on the ground. And the administration didn't want, especially after what went on with the last administration between the last administration and Germany, they didn't want another you know another irritant. In this this very important bilateral relationship, how do we finesse this? If we have, if yeah yeah I've don't...
1: been asked this question a number of times, Brian, on Deutsche Welle, and I'll say the same thing to you that I, I say there, which is, uh, you know, Trump treated Germany in particular atrociously, uh, Angela Merkel very specifically in a in a very um, uh, negative way, no no doubt. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but this administration, the Biden administration, took many many very positive steps to reverse some of the bad Uh, in concerning uh, policy proposals and directions that the Trump administration had taken uh, with respect to the U.S.-German relationship, in particular on, you know, bellicose language about trade wars, uh, the uh, the threat to remove all U.S. uh, uh, troops from Germany and move them elsewhere, um, and, uh, you know, pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord and all these sort of things that were really bad and very, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, very clearly irritants in the transatlantic relationship writ large, but also in particular with the U.S.-German relationship. They've all been reversed, and 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 thankfully so. We need to take climate action. Uh, we need to bolster our security and and our our defense cooperation uh, with uh, with Germany and with uh, with Europe uh, via NATO. And um, you know, all of these sort of things have been reversed. Nord Stream two was not, in my view, necessary to rewrite the US-German relationship. And if it is, that really says something. Uh, more about the priorities of some in the German political establishment than it does about transatlantic cooperation.
0: Yeah, I mean, what worried me is the optics, though. I mean, yeah, we're talking about sanctioning Nord Stream AG, which is basically Matthias Varnik. Um That's not Germany. That's a former Stasi officer, right? right. Um, who, were, who spent his whole life working against the United States and against the Federal Republic of Germany. The most of his early, the earlier part of his life. Um, so, yeah, Vardnick is not Germany. That's number one. But the optics, I mean, you know how this is going to look in a headline. America sanctions Germany. That's what it's going to look like. And no matter what all the other facts that you said that are all true and accurate, that's the way it's going to play. And I think that is what concerned the administration. I mean, is it I mean, I don't know how closely you're following the German government, the, 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 the coalition talks. But a lot is riding on this. Do you see something kind of popping out of this that will be – that maybe we can get buy-in from to stop this? I mean, is it, is it possible the Greens kind of make this a condition for joining the cabinet?
1: I think it's really what Russia is doing that can that can make this happen rather than uh, even uh, what happens to the German coalition agreement. I mean, we, we've seen, as you said in the opener, uh, the Russian ambassador to the EU make numerous statements uh, that call for – Europe to change its policy writ large not just on energy but writ large uh towards Russia in exchange for their use of Nord Stream 2 to ease the gas crisis um uh, and uh you know Putin has made threats uh the, you know various Kremlin officials uh continue to come out and link uh the um the 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 start of Nord Stream 2 uh, with uh, Russian ability to um, basically reduce the market pressure that we've seen build over the past several months, um, and and so I think that's that's the case. But the other thing, Brian, is you know because of those actions, we have to go back to what what the Biden administration did do over the summer, which is to, to basically announce a joint statement. A lot of folks in the the media and. Expert community reflexively called it a deal, but it wasn't a deal. It was a joint statement, very much an outline of mm-hmm. the sort of policy trajectories that the U.S. and Germany over time would would take on this front. And I think there, uh, in this case, can now be a, a a very clear cooperative reaction between Washington and Berlin uh, because that statement said that Germany has committed. That if russia uses energy as a political weapon they will then push in the european context because of, of course germany uh can't directly sanction uh, on, on their own they, they need to work through uh through brussels um but they would push for sanctions uh in particular on Nord stream too and you know it, 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 i mean by any threshold and we, you and i can can chat and debate about this at length uh today uh about what constitutes using energy as exactly. a, a political weapon but it's happening. It's happened right now, and it's happened throughout the entire development chain. You know, the technical development chain, everything uh, associated with the development of Nord Stream Two from 2015 to 2021. You and I have watched this happen again and again and again. Yes. So it actually, you know, strains credulity and, and, and is almost intellectually dishonest uh, for uh, for generalized statements saying we're not exactly sure. You know, who is to blame here, or what what is going on, um, and. Uh, you know, we're we're going to get to a point where more leaders, including in Germany, have to come out, uh, like Annalena Baerbock herself did, uh, and said this is political blackmail, and and it should not be used uh, to undermine the regulatory approvals that the Bundesnetzagentur is advancing in Germany.
0: Yeah, no, and in the past when we looked at, it, at cases of Russia using energy as a weapon, I mean the the, the template has been basically cutting the gas off to Ukraine. Um, which Russia's at yeah. war with, um, which had the effect of cutting the gas off to Europe. Now, this, the whole, one of the rationales behind this pipeline is to, so, that, so the gas doesn't have to go through Ukraine, um, right. Which is which is causing you know a, a lot of consternation in Ukraine, but there are other ways that gas can be used as a weapon. So I mean, I, but you you do see poss- a possibility that you can get German buy in under the new
1: government. Um, I'm, uh, it's possible. I mean, things are things are open in these negotiations. I mean, we've seen some of the framework uh, 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 language to enter into these negotiations come out, and you know, make kind of paltry uh, glances at Nord Stream two, nothing very specific, but. Uh, things, you know, statements saying that, uh, you know, all all gas infrastructure needs to abide by EU law. Okay, that's that's As far as I'm concerned, the very uh, lowest threshold that you could imagine. So with respect to the coalition agreement, we really are going to see over the next weeks. um, This is going to be in the headlines. It's going to continue to be in the headlines because there is a gas crisis ongoing as we speak in Europe. And it's not even winter yet. Um, And there's going to be a, a much, much more vociferous push for the current caretaker government of Germany, I think, uh, to call this out for what it is. And I think the reason that we haven't really heard anything specific uh, from, uh, from, from Merkel's caretaker government, aside from uh, Merkel herself, saying that, well, you know, Russia has uh, not, you know, broken existing contracts or, or done a, a dramatic gas cutoff, um, we haven't heard them say that this is being used as a political weapon. And I think the reason is that they know as soon as they did that, they would have to follow through mm-hmm. with their joint agreement with Washington. And that's where the cooperation can come in. And I hope that that can we can get there.
0: OK, no, that's 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 encouraging to hear, especially with a with a coalition that's in all likelihood going to be led by the SPD, right. uh, which is the most Nord Stream friendly party in, in Germany, to say the least. What about the rest of Europe? Uh, Poland and Lithuania have been actively trying to stop this for a while. Um, what about the rest of Europe, and what about regulatory ro- roadblocks? Are there any any regulatory roadblocks that can still be thrown up?
1: Yeah, and, and again, this is this is some of the uh, the same uh, legal discussion that has gone on for the entire lifespan of the Nord Stream uh, uh, project, both technically as a uh, you know a, a developed uh, infrastructure project, but also as a concept. Um, they're not over yet. I mean, we've seen again and again the European Court of Justice and. Uh, various uh, uh, circuit courts in Dusseldorf and elsewhere uh, strike down pushes uh, that we've seen the uh, the Kremlin and Gazprom uh, have towards uh, trying to get Nord Stream 2 outside of regulatory authority of the EU, meaning at least to some extent outside of the third energy package. And it's right. just not going to happen at this point. It's uh, not the yeah, and they, they basically have argued three things. Number one, they've been arguing that. Nord Stream 2 was uh, "quote unquote" complete uh, uh, by an economic perspective, which is not a legal definition by any measure, uh, before the gas directive was updated in uh, in 2019, and therefore it shouldn't be it should be grandfathered out. Um, this is obviously not the case because the f- uh, pipeline was physically incomplete. It didn't even have regulatory approval to be built in Danish waters. At that point, right. So that, that, that is a non-starter That's been stricken down. They continue to challenge on these grounds. They uh, on the second the second ground is okay. If we have to quote unquote uh, you know try to get around the third energy package from Gazprom's perspective, they propose, for example, Gazprom owning and operating and operating as a as their their standard monopolistic model. The, uh, you know, the let's say the northern ninety eight percent of Nord Stream two's extent. Uh, from uh lunga in, in in the Russian Federation uh, to the territorial sea exclusive economic zone boundary on the Baltic seabed mm-hmm. off the German coast, and then claim that there is will be a different owner with a different regulatory environment that somehow magically uh takes place on that virtual point on the seabed and and then you know within EU territory uh this this holds. Obviously that won't work because it's a legal fiction. You have than two regulatory uh, uh, environments taking place on a single continuous pipeline that doesn't have in situ or, or right. uh, you know, uh, pipe you know, valves that could even do this on a technical basis. So it's not a network. It can't that can't happen. And the third one that you and I have seen in the headlines over the past several weeks is this idea that all of a sudden Rosneft uh, can get in the game. And, and that's really interesting because. For the first time, if that happened, you know, I've even seen opponents of Nord Stream 2 come out and say, well, this, you know, that could maybe be good for opening up uh, and liberalizing the uh, the market upstream in Russia uh, because Gazprom has traditionally held the monopoly for piped gas exports to the EU. Right. So if you get another, you know— uh, uh, state-owned enterprise operating Another, Maybe another
0: Kremlin-connected state-owned enterprise.
1: Well, that, that's <laughs> the point. They're both Kremlin-owned and operated and, and answered to Vladimir Putin. So right. it really doesn't make sense from a political or security level uh, on that front, but also it goes against EU law, potentially, because they've been publicly announcing that they're going to make this sort of deal internal uh, to Russia and then just present it as a fait accompli to the EU. And that potentially runs afoul of uh, of the, uh, the, the transparency clauses and, uh, and other regulatory mechanisms in the third energy package that require open and free and fair auctioning of energy right. infrastructure in the EU. So it would be kind of like, you know, de facto creating an illegal cartel.
0: I mean, this, this what's been so frustrating. Last, I'm I'm far from an energy expert, but it's it just strikes me as common sense that all the EU needs to do is enforce its own laws, and this project should be dead in the water. The third energy package, from my understanding, is completely clear. Right. You can't control both upstream and downstream. You can't control production and distribution. That's a it's a basic anti-monopoly provision that's in the that that is the 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 law of the EU. And yet Gazprom seems to be able to continuously get around this. And this this is it's it's frustrating and puzzling. I mean, what do you make of that? Is this is this just politics? Well, I think
1: we're in a new era. We're going to be you know, these regulations are going to be tested. The gas directive amendment update happened in twenty nineteen. That really makes it clear that. Uh, that these pipelines, and I won't go into the upstream versus uh, uh, um, uh, transmission pipeline debate that I think we had uh, way back when. Uh, but the bottom line is, um, you know, there's a much, you know, more well-defined regulatory environment that continues to be updated and have case law examples where you've already seen the Opal pipeline, the onshore portion of Nord Stream Two, mm-hmm. as you said, get out of these. Uh, uh, regulations for a while, and um, and not offer third-party access, and and um, and ownership unbundling, and all these sort of provisions to some extent. Um, but then we've seen them get stricken down at every successive level, going up to the European Court of Justice, and that was because of a Lithuanian and Polish um, uh, challenge, which said that energy solidarity is key here, because what we have to remember, and this is you know just throwing out a single. Uh, uh, legal clause, but it's really important. So remember this one, Article 11, Article 11 of the gas directive states that the energy infrastructure uh, of a given, you know, in a given member state, the energy regulatory authority in that member state needs to offer certification that the energy infrastructure does not harm the energy security of the host nation. So, in this case, the Bundesnetzagentur, the national energy Regulata- regulator of Germany, would have to say that uh, that Nord Stream two doesn't harm the energy security of Germany. That it doesn't harm the energy security of any of its bordering nations. Uh, so, in particular, Poland in this case mm-hmm. is, uh, is a good example. Or is the or the EU as uh, as a whole. And very clearly, we've already seen because of the Lithuanian and Polish challenge on Opal. Uh, that this is, you know, this is very clear. And energy solidarity is not a political construct, as uh, some uh, German supporters of the project have tried to go out and say. Uh, it's it's a it's a basis in in EU basic law, and that's really important to remember because that stops the project. That that potentially has the ability to stop the project if it's used in a way uh, that um, very clearly states that you know this project can be used to harm the energy security of Germany. Bordering nations or the EU writ large. Well,
0: what are we waiting on right now? I know basically Nordstrom is waiting on the, the you know the regulatory uh, approval and permissions to begin operating, be, begin begin yeah. you know selling gas. What exactly are we waiting for all of this to be resolved? Is that is that where where we are right now? Well, yeah. I mean, I look. I I just saw uh, last
1: week the the, uh, the 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 new James Bond film No Time to Die, and it, and it has throughout its. Orchestration, a lot of cues to we have all the time in the world. That's the only spoiler that I'll um, uh, I'll give. But the the bottom line is, you know, we don't EU leaders don't have all the time in the world now, right? right? They they need to act now because let's let's take a journey a few months from now, if if we if if you will, we get to a point where um, there's a number of tracks going on. You have the regulatory approvals, uh, you know, coming to fruition potentially in Germany. Uh, by the Bundesnetzagentor in early January, that was the "quote-unquote" deadline that uh, the Russian ambassador to the EU gave, um, which again puts pressure on the regulatory environment, and therefore the democratic resilience of right. of, uh, of EU regulatory mechanisms to begin with. Um, you have the, uh, the the coalition negotiations, which obviously the Greens and the FDP are very. Clearly against uh, Nord Stream two, and and you know want a moratorium at least on this. So we'll see how that goes. And you also have U.S. Uh, Congress, which is barreling ahead towards the end of the year, NDAA sanctions and National Defense Authorization Act sanctions. And I think that we get to a point where all of these are going to come to a head at the same time in the middle of the winter, um, where already the market environment is squeezing the EU and and driving up prices. So. Um, you know Russia is aware of this, and that's why they have contributed to this gas crisis. Um, and and I, yeah, I think I think it's uh, useful to the uh, the listener to explain what's going on right now. So you have a number of things. It's not simply that uh, that Russia is um, uh, is is has generated this global energy um, energy market that we see now, but they've certainly contributed to it on a regional level. If you call the EU and the European um, energy community, a region, uh, to make it worse. So what, what has been going on is coming out of, of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, um, basically industry and, and energy markets have rebounded uh, much more rapidly than some producers had uh, anticipated. That has put constraints on the market. It's, uh, it's basically had a big boom in, um, in, uh, in consumption. In industrial markets such as Southeast Asia in particular in China where the Chinese government has uh, told its ministers to uh, secure energy supplies uh, at, at basically any cost which has driven up the market but at the same time that all that's going on uh, one would assume that Gazprom would be cashing in uh, uh, as much as possible by, by delivering additional volumes like it normally right. does throughout the summer and fall to, to Europe and it hasn't done so um, and in October and November now we just saw this week uh, Gazprom has not booked any additional capacity to send gas to storages in Europe via the Belarus-Poland pipeline route or the Ukrainian gas transmission mm-hmm. system. And that's that's the key here.
0: So they're basically not putting sending gas through Belarus or Poland or, or Ukraine, and that is kind of contributing to the crisis, creating an impression that Nord Stream 2 is necessary, and there's a very right. simple solution to this problem. There very, is, very, very, yeah. very clever. Yeah, they, yeah uh, there they, is
1: ample pipeline capacity they could be using right now, and they are not. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's key because they can kind of have their cake and eat it too. They can say we are fulfilling our contracts. The the the, the baseline volumes are still going through those routes, but we're simply not going to book any additional volumes. And so so you can have Nord Stream supporters. We've seen some German politicians already come out and say this uh, that you know Moscow is not to blame because look they haven't broken their contracts, but they're not. They're not also falling by normal market dynamics by booking those additional capacities. Right. So if we get to a point in January, let's say, where you have a regulatory block on Nord Stream 2 or uh, a sanctions block on Nord Stream 2, there's going to be a, uh, you know, I would say the the mother of all energy propaganda uh, showdowns between the Kremlin and the West uh, as to who's to blame. And, and if Nord Stream 2 is stopped in that case, you're going to see the Kremlin saying, OK, uh, you know, guess what? uh, European, uh, consumers, your prices are going up s- solely because, uh, the West wants to stop Nord Stream 2, mm. uh, ignoring that all of the ample, ample pipeline capacity still exists through Poland and, and Ukraine. Um, whereas on the other side, uh, on, on, on the Western side, you're going to have to point out that no, actually Russia is not abiding by normal market conditions. And that is what is driving and causing this. And and that's really, I mean, you know, stay tuned, folks. This is coming
0: in just a few weeks Yeah, no, this is classic geopolitical extortion, something something that this Kremlin excels at. Then, what I wanted to do in the, the remainder of the first half is kind of go back to basics on this, mm-hmm. because there is this – impression among a lot of people who should know better. And it's an impression that the Kremlin is trying hard to create as well. And then it's amplified by, uh, by by the Amen chorus in in the industrial lobby in Germany. And that is that Nord Stream 2 is necessary. We need this pipeline because right. Germany needs this gas and Europe needs this gas. Now, my understanding is that is not actually true. Can you can you flesh that out for me?
1: Yeah. And this is in a long line of you know, aphorisms or, uh,
0: uh, or or
1: tropes that that have uh, have evolved throughout the uh, the Nord Stream Two uh, saga over the years. But that's that's one of the the biggest whoppers out there. Let's look at the technical details of the onshore portion of Nord Stream Two and how it's being designed. If you look at its actual design, the Oigal pipeline only allows for nine point nine billion cubic meters. Of the 55 billion cubic meter Nord Stream 2, mm-hmm. to to go to Germany and points west. So this notion that Germany itself needs it for its energy transition, uh, albeit you know coming from one of the biggest uh, um, methane uh, 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 inefficiency and, and leak abusers uh, in the planet, coming from the, uh, the 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 Russian upstream in the Amal Peninsula. Right. Um, it, it's not even going. There. Right. So even if they wanted it, it's going to have to go through Oigal out through the Czech Republic to the Baumgarten gas hub in Austria, which is owned by uh, Austrian OMF, and then sent back to Germany, even if it comes to Germany. But the idea is to significantly reduce or end gas transit via Ukraine. So all the Baumgarten gas hub that OMF operates is the endpoint of that route through Ukraine. And right. so, if you bring that volume to that same point, then you can bring it back into Germany potentially. But most of it's not even going to Germany. Right, it's it's it's, right. it's just re, uh, uh, replacing existing volumes that are going through uh, uh, Ukraine.
0: But and at the same time, Germany seems to be trying to position itself as kind of the gas hub of Europe. I mean, this is a power play by Germany as well, in the eyes of a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I think I think there is there is some some uh, you know component of that. Uh, but at the same time, you know it, it, you know you really have a situation where the main drivers of this pipeline are you know we can step back and look at. You know wh- what is in it for uh, you know for both you know you know players in the uh, in in the the Russian market and and players in the European market. Well, for players in the uh, the Russian market, a two thousand eighteen Bank report made very clear that the biggest winners of this um, are are Russian oligarchs themselves. Uh, uh, U.S. sanctioned uh, Rotenberg and uh, and Timchenko, uh, for example, are are the main beneficiaries in. Uh, in the upstream in, in Russia. And for the downstream, if you look back in September, October uh, 2015, at the same time that the five uh, so, so-called Western investment partners uh, were, um, or at that point shareholders, uh, were were involved in, in stating their involvement in signing on to Nord Stream 2, they all got something around the same time in terms of press releases that for example, OMFAL got an asset swap agreement or asset access agreement uh, upstream in the Amal Peninsula. Um, we saw the same thing go on for BSF Indershall in Germany, and um, and for Royal Dutch Shell they got access in uh, the Socaline. Again, these aren't these aren't um, you know a, 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 you know direct quid pro quo sort of agreements that directly tie. They're, they're you know two different things. Uh, but it's it's telling to see. You know how cooperation with these exact firms uh, increased in other areas inside Russia. Right. Um. When when you know the idea supposedly is that this is the holy grail uh, from the Kremlin's perspective of solving all of uh, Europe's energy woes, which of course
0: it's not. Right. No. And I want to get into that in the second half, where we're going to talk about the the, the, the alternatives. Um. You you're touching on something here, Ben, that I think is really central and, and, and very important. And this is the the connection between Nord Stream two and strategic corruption. You yeah. know, I mean, one of my favorite kind of sound bites is that Nord Stream 2 is going to pump as much corruption into Europe as it pumps gas into Europe. And this more, and more probably. And this is uh, this is this is really the heart of the matter, because I mean, I think that's what this is all about. Quite frankly, these projects tend to create kind of these these chains of corruption that morph into networks of influence uh, and ready made pro Kremlin lobbies. In Western countries, could you could you speak to that a bit here? Absolutely. I mean,
1: this is this was born in uh, the concept of elite capture and strategic corruption. Gerhard Schroeder approved, then then uh, uh, the, uh, the the German Chancellor back in 2005 uh, of the SPD party, which is now coming back to power after 16 years of Angela Merkel's CDU party being in charge. Uh, approved Nord Stream two in the waning hours of his chancellorship, stepped out of office. And then, you know, just a few weeks later, got a board seat on Nord Stream 1 AG. Um, and, you know, and we've seen this again and again. You know, uh, Gerhard Schroeder has uh, has taken a board seat on the Russian um, uh, state-owned oil company Rosneft. Um, this led uh, Tumas Ilves and, uh, and Ed Lucas. And I think there's, uh, you know... A back and forth between you know who who said it first and who popularized it. I think Tumas said it first, and I think uh, Ed Lucas popularized it. Uh, but the, the, the point is this this term of uh, Schroderization schroederization, in English, schroederization. <laughs> schroederization, uh, But there are many of these uh, Schroderized officials that have come uh, since Nord Stream Two was and announced. Former um, former
0: Austrian Chancellor, former
1: Austrian Chancellor Christian Kern penned a very strong letter against U.S. sanctions uh, targeting Nord Stream 2 back in 2017 with then uh, SPD, Foreign Minister of Germany, Sigmar Gabriel, um, and stepped out of office, became uh, uh, chairman, uh, or uh, sorry, had a board seat on Russian state-controlled Russian railways. You had the Austrian Finance Minister, Hans-Jörg Schelling, uh, support uh, uh, Nord Stream 2 while in office step out and become a senior advisor for Nord Stream uh, 2. Uh, a G. You had uh, Austrian Foreign Minister Karen Kneisel, with whom uh, she danced with Putin at her wedding. Um, uh, uh, step out of office after having, you know, many pro Kremlin policies and, and supporting Nord Stream Two. First, uh, write a number of op-eds for RT in, in support of Nord Stream Two, and then uh, earlier this year, uh, come out and and become a member of. Uh, of the board on uh, of Rosneft, um, when we had, of course, Francois Fillon in right. um, in in France, uh, the disgraced former uh, prime minister, uh, who I believe still has to serve a jail sentence, but he has uh, nonetheless got a uh, jail sentence for corruption, but nonetheless got a seat on a Russian uh, um, state-controlled energy trading firm uh, as quote rep- representative of the Russian Federation itself. So there's the new term feonization or right, uh, right. you know it, it just goes on and on and on this is this is i think one of the most defining concerns that i have for this whole issue set in terms of how these sort of deals get outside of the dogmatic you know energy market discussion and into You know, how do these projects erode the democratic resilience of uh, Western democracies? And we can talk
0: more about that. Yeah, it's and it's creating and going beyond the the Nord Stream project pipeline itself. Gazprom has kind of created all of these little shell companies, these gas trading companies all over Europe, nominally run by Europeans. uh, A lot of them who just so happen to have worked in the Stasi um, under the former regime. Things like Vemex in the Czech Republic or Centrex. In, in in Austria and this kind of spreads out into this kind of this web of strategic corruption the thing that always puzzles me about the whole concept of shredderization and or, 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 or fionization, all the or all of these I mean imagine for a moment um, even in our polarized political environment here in the. US if we found out that like former President Obama was at a board seat at Huawei for example yeah. or yeah. former President Bush, had a board seat at huawei i think that would probably be a bit of a scandal i'm guessing it wouldn't (laughs) just
1: be a story brian it would be the only story i know it wouldn't you know we wouldn't hear the end of it until uh you know the trial was over basically right
0: so think about this in the german context we're talking about a transparent democratic country with with institutions and processes but yet this is going on everybody knows about it it's become something of a running joke how is this possible I mean, I think that it goes it goes back to
1: you know what does the political electorate tolerate, and I think in many Western European countries, uh, the political you know you know uh, you know folks that are are very well educated uh, to the political landscape uh, dismiss this because they look at this as kind of you know that's that's kind of sleazy. I've talked to friends uh, from uh, from my physics days in Germany, just uh, you know just just personal friends who are very keyed into these sort of issues. And when I ask them about, you know, are you concerned about shorterization and things like this, you know, they will say things like, well, you know, it's it's bad, but it's sleazy, and this is what you know, this is what politicians do, and that's that's a concern, right? There, there is a there's an expectation, at least in the U.S., that this is this is wrong and should be legislated against. Obviously, we have a lot of issues to solve in the U.S. I know you've talked to yeah. uh, uh, Josh Rudolph and Paul Massaro and 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 company on this front and and they are doing great work and and should continue to do so on you know on the domestic front but at the same time there has to be a transatlantic consensus against this that at least this is wrong um and 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 you know for example come up with something that says you know if you're a you know there uh, you know mandated cooling off periods i mean uh, schroeder stepped out of office and immediately was on the board of a company that he uh, you know, Russian state-owned uh, state-owned enterprise that he approved just just weeks earlier. So, I mean, these are the sort of things that need to be legislated. Against. Yeah, that that looks like a quid pro quo to me. <laughs> but, but Brian, the the concern I have is not that there, you know, you don't need this sort of Ibiza tape sort of scandal to come out to to you know have these sort of things still be concerning. Um, I think that because there is really no pushback uh, on a legal or a political level against this against these practices. You have a situation where, you know, politicians in office can say, you know, if I'm already have the proclivity to, to you know, not really care about Russian security issues or something like that. As long as I, I you know, maybe internally am not, you know, uh, overtly uh, taking national security actions uh, or pushing for them against the Russian Federation for their malign influence and, and uh, adventurism abroad you know maybe something comes down the road again not in, in not even something that's consciously thought of like that it's just mm-hmm. kind of embedded because it's it's the norm um and and that's the concern i have and um you know we need to come to a transatlantic consensus on that and that's why i'm hopeful that the biden administration's anti um you know counter kleptocracy anti corruption focus uh, is, uh, you know, is ported into this area and, and is, is, is a key thread in the transatlantic
0: relationship. Yeah, no, I want to see this be front and center at NATO, actually. Right. And I was, Absolutely. I was really encouraged by very early in the administration that the, 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 president's, uh, the president's memorandum on this, um, right. I mean, but was... the Go same ahead.
1: week that it happened, Brian, I, you know, I, I, there's, you'll find no bigger supporter of this administration than me, but I was concerned by that. Uh, because the same week that they put out that I- I excellent memo that, you know, many of us in this community have waited years to see something like this, uh, especially from the White House, uh, you know, the sanctions were waived on Matthias Varnig, who is, you know, my, yeah, my I gosh, know. I mean, a former <laughs> Stasi officer who who was you know allegedly friends with Putin and, and not alleged, of, not, ale- not allegedly. well yeah okay <laughs> anyways he's friends they, with Putin let's you know how they,
0: you know how they you know how they met in Dresden I mean Varnick was with with, with the Stasi and Putin was with, with you know obviously with the KGB Putin got himself as, into this role as the liaison between the Stasi yes. and the KGB in Dresden he and Varnik set up a a so-called business consultancy in right. dresden to basically help businessmen from from western europe who wanted to do business in the german democratic republic um, and it was basically set to set them up in honey traps so be so wow. can and uh, that's that's you know that this is this is varney this is you know re- re- really nice guy um before we move into the second half um where right here, uh, yeah, in yeah, book. Yeah. no no catherine belton uh, who was I- who has been a guest on this podcast and is an old friend of mine spells this out in excellent detail. I am
1: holding I'm for the, cause this is an audio podcast. I'm holding up my copy of Catherine's book. Buy it today. It's excellent. Read it. Um, you know, she is being uh Su- sorry sued. Sorry, sued for <laughs> this by uh yeah.
0: Yeah, I, know. Once I that, meant to say persecuted. Perse- persecuted. Once that's yeah. all over, I want to have her on this program. Yeah, uh before we move into the second half, I, I, I did want to get you to talk, I know there's something you want to talk about, and I, I do want to hear what you sure. have to say about this. I know you wanted to talk about the parallels between Nord Stream 2 and the broader critical infrastructure, uh, you know, and broader critical infrastructure influence campaigns that have been used by by Russia and China. So I, I know you, guys, you have some things to say about that as well.
1: Yeah, Brian, I, and look, I, I think that it comes down to one of the other tropes that I hear a lot in the Nord Stream discussion. When I talk to Folks, you know that are are well-meaning in the national security space on both sides of the Atlantic that don't follow these issues in particular, you know. Particularly, uh, I think there's a, a a temptation to look at all of these various issues, which I'll highlight in a second, as individual issues, uh, and then so you'll hear some variation on the the term, oh well, Nord Stream two, or well Huawei, or five G, or other emerging tech and AI. You know, the, these are these are all issues or anecdotal. Uh, uh, pieces of policy that need to be addressed in some way, but we need to think bigger, Brian. We need to think more strategically. Uh, And the answer that I give to that is that we do need to have an overarching strategy for these issues, but we also have to have uh, operational successes so that authoritarian nations don't take the lesson that, you know, aside from grand strategy, uh, there won't be any actual pushback on these sort of projects. And, And the reason I'm concerned is this. You have Moscow and you have Beijing uh, advancing critical infrastructure investments, advancing uh, emerging technologies, advancing um, you know all, all sorts of uh, of different quote unquote economic deals. hashtag Not just a commercial deal in a lot of these cases, if not all of them. Um, and the the bottom line is they you know they are being built you know, for, you know, some level of economic, uh, uh consideration, but to a much greater extent is, as strategic investments for national security, uh, um, you know, priorities that authoritarian nations have, right? So you have, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's 5G and telecoms, whether it's, uh, Russia, you know, with, uh, sorry, with, with China or it's, it's energy with Russia, you know, China's Belt and Road Initiative, for general critical infrastructure or the nuclear on, nuclear energy with nuclear Russia. energy supply chains, uh, you know that that Rosatom uh, has with with uh, countries in Europe, uh, you know these are all used for uh, you know and seen as part of a general uh, national security uh, you know basis for authoritarian nations to execute their policies to undermine democratic resilience across the West. We need to be very clear that we have to have successes in dealing with these on a regulatory level, on a sanctions level, on a uh, you know, a, a general policy level, if you will. but at the same time, connect them all and recognize them for what they are. These aren't individual uh, um, investments or 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 projects. I mean they are, but they are all connected in the sense that uh, they all advance the broader goals of authoritarian nations being able to weaponize and include, uh, uh, Pseudo economic uh, investments in their grant their grant strategies, um, and so so that's that's my pushback on this idea that you need to look bigger because you know read the headlines. I mean, we see headlines on all of the issues I just mentioned almost every day, and um, if we don't deal with them on a, a level that is uh, you know is is oriented towards transatlantic cooperation in this case or global cooperation in um, in some cases. It's, it's going to become more and more difficult as these authoritarian nations become intertwined in our economies to really unravel that that big knot of uh, of right. strategic uh, corruption malign influence elite capture et etc
0: yeah, no. It, I mean, it's already difficult. I mean, we are kind of fighting this this normative struggle in an integrated world, and it's it's difficult enough as it is right now. I'd I'd, I'd hate to see it uh, get get even worse. Well, that's a good good way to shift gears because I want to think about the unthinkable in the second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion in *Peer Into the Future* to imagine a world where Nord Stream Two is up and running. What can and should the West do to minimize and mitigate against the damage? I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and joining me from Cambridge, Massachusetts is Dr. Benjamin Schmidt a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University and the and former European Energy Security Advisor at the U.S. State Department. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин по не
1: слушал, послушайте Привет. Это навальный, я уже вышел свою работу. А сотрудники на э, безопасности с новым
0: годом вас с новым веком. So, ben, uh, the there, let's, let's, let's imagine, um, like um, imagine Nord 2 gets all its approvals, all its green lights. Um, it goes fully online. Russia wins this battle. Mm-hmm. Where are we in terms of European energy uh, security? The battle against strategic corruption, Ukraine security. What are the policy options, if any, to mitigate the damage that could be caused by Nord Stream 2 fully going online and Russia winning this battle? Well,
1: look, I, you know, I, I think that there are – let, let's unpack each one of those. Ukrainian security. I mean, there there has been a, a cursory uh, policy, um, uh, uh, you know – Statement that often says, you know, this will hurt uh, Ukraine economically because it'll lose several billion dollars a year in transit revenues, uh, which of course is concerning because it's a percentage of their GDP that's gone. They're already under stress and at war with Russia in in, in the east, and, um, and of course uh, uh, the illegal uh, annexation uh, of of uh, the Crimean peninsula. So, um, you know, the, these are these are big concerns from an economic standpoint. However, the bigger concern I think is. The energy infrastructure as national security asset standpoint and connection is really important to, to, to suss out because you have a situation where right now, even today, um, even with the lack of additional bookings across Ukraine and Poland and, and Belarus that Russia has right now during this ongoing gas crisis, uh, you still have Russia relying to some extent without Nord Stream 2 being online uh, on the um uh, Ukrainian gas transmission system, uh, and you know when you look at the overlay of the line of contact in Donbass and that system, you see that there's a number of the main trunk lines that run very close, if not circumscribing, some of the areas of the line of contact. And the explanation that Ukrainian security experts often give for that is that Russia relies on those pipes for their own economic uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, benefit, right, to, to get gas through Ukraine to Europe to markets that they that they serve. Um, without that dependency right that is a concern on a national security standpoint not mm. that the you know some sort of thing dramatically the, the tanks roll tomorrow but it's one less uh deterrent in uh the you know for the kremlin in terms of their playbook to fully destabilize or undermine ukrainian sovereignty uh, and i think that we uh, you know that's why you know you can't set the uh uh you know the 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 so-called you know let's think about this bigger picture because if you ignore these operational issues and that's why I always harp on the science and technology uh, vetting of, of these sort of issues as well, because the technical reality of this is as important as the political reality of this. We need to understand that that file is going to land right back on your desk uh, as a national security uh, crisis. Um, And, and it's going to be in part uh, because you know, not enough, or, 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 or maybe not even not enough, but because only a, a uh, monodisciplinary approach, maybe an economic or an energy uh, markets approach was taken uh, to uh, a national and, and multinational response to things like Nord Stream 2, instead of a holistic approach where you actually identify that these are direct national security threats that we have to be associated with them, because that's how authoritarian nations do this. They connect all of these issues. And right. we need to be more adaptable at doing that and actually understanding this on a multidisciplinary basis and
0: responding. Right. So there's no real there's, there's there's not much to do there to mitigate that other than basically more defense assistance to Ukraine. Effectively, that's that, that's about all we can do. Right.
1: Well, let's see. I mean, that the, the the thing is, I mean, this is, you know, it doesn't have to be. I would guess that there's not going to be necessarily a dramatic Uh, you know, one day to the next cutoff uh, through Ukraine uh, once Nord Stream 2 comes online, if it does. Uh, But, you know, we have seen that with TurkStream, and that was one of the other tropes that I I wanted to get out there. You know, you often hear in the Nord Stream debates, you know, everyone's talking about uh, Nord Stream 2, but no one's talking about the quote-unquote real threat, which is TurkStream. TurkStream is a threat, no question, for the same reason that Nord Stream is, but its technical reality is that it's only 1575 billion cubic meters of gas per year that's going uh, going through it, versus 55 with Nord Stream 2, 110 combined with Nord Stream 1. Uh, we saw on January 1st, 2020, last year, uh, a significant drop in the, um, the the Russia to Ukraine to Balkans, uh, the quote-unquote trans-Balkan route, uh, with a 90% drop in volumetric uh, capacity transmission at the Olovka compressor station between uh, Ukraine and Romania. And uh, that continued. There was about a 70 percent drop over the entire year. And and so, yeah, that was pretty dramatic. But we didn't have a gas crisis because the sanctions back in 2019 to 2020 that came online stopped Nord Stream 2 in its tracks and didn't allow that crisis to get bigger than it could have been. Uh, but if Nord Stream 2 comes online, it can be used in tandem with Turk Stream. So both are threats. But right. Nord Stream 2 is actually the bigger threat. And that's why there's been a focus on this in the transatlantic community.
0: Right. And on the, on the strategic corruption piece, I mean, I mean, you touched on this in the first half, but we're going to need stronger transatlantic regimes to mitigate against this um, stronger legislation on both sides of the Atlantic and stronger international agreements um uh, across the atlantic in order to mitigate this 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 very real threat of strategic corruption um I, if there's anything you want to add to that and then i want to kind of get into the energy security piece because that's where i think there's a lot of interesting aspects of this to look at
1: yeah i mean again in terms of strategic corruption we need to i think on a transatlantic basis very very come up very you know clearly and very vociferously uh to state that the you know these sort of developments of elite capture are not uh, uh not can't be normalized, shouldn't be normalized and need to be unnormalized because I think they already are normalized in in some European context. Um, and uh, you know we need to have stronger um, you know stronger regulations in Washington to to lead this effort and right. try to join them to the extent possible, obviously not joint legislation with the EU or, or EU member states, but rather <clears throat> synchronized um, so that our our you know collective security can be safeguarded. Uh, against that, because it's it's going to be you know th- this next decade you know we've just seen this skyrocket in the past decade. I can only imagine if there's
0: no intervention, this is just going to continue. Right, right. And um and on the energy security piece, um I mean I I, I our, our, our our mutual friend Agnica So I really wanted to get to join us today. Yeah. She, has, she had a previous engagement, <laughs> um but she's been arguing, uh, and I think correctly. <clears throat> that structural changes in the, um, in, in the global gas market are not working to Russia's advantage. Um, the argument Agnia makes is that the, the gas market, because of LNG, is beginning to become truly global. It's not mm-hmm. tied to these, the, these, these long-term contracts linked to a pipeline. These are the things that Russia really likes to lock into. With LNG... The gas market, liquefied natural natural gas. The gas market is changing into something that more resembles the oil market, the global oil market. A market fungible. Which is it's much more fungible. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that over the long haul, this is going to make things like Nord Stream two. I mean, these are. I'm not. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but this is me interpreting it. Um, that if this is the case, if these trends continue, this is going to make projects like Nord Stream two moot. Um, do you agree with that? I think in the long term and i do mean long term that is
1: absolutely right i think your assessment and what agnia has said is absolutely correct um i think in the in terms of the localized gas crisis we see today global market conditions have conspired against uh that sort of fungibility uh you know argument only because of the you know unprecedented market fluctuations in a post uh 19 right. world right so i think this in the short term Russia is a major beneficiary of the situation that's down, that's been thrown at its feet. It's actively, uh, you know, kicking that situation further along to make it, you know, as worse as it, it can to, to regain leverage uh, on, you know, who knows what. You know, it's it's right now asking for Nord Stream two to be, um, uh, to be approved faster. Which of course, that's that's really concerning from a, a democratic resilience perspective. Imagine. If there's no big pushback outside of Annalena Baerbock, who's not in the government at this point right. in Germany, in although Poland. she will be, she will, she would no, she's right, she will be. But uh, the the issue is happening now. This German government right now has to come out and say that it is not okay on a unequivocal basis that Russia is linking uh, its own re- independent regulator's approval with this, with you know re- relieving a, a gas crisis in, in in changing market conditions. Because if not. Um, it basically is reinforcing the notion, whether or not it's true, that Russia can strong arm these sort of independent right. regulators and undermine rule of law in the process, uh, confidence in the rule of law. I think that from a, uh, a market perspective, uh, Russia could be a loser on this in the longer term. I think the other thing that Russia is doing, Brian, that is concerning to me is, uh, as a you know a scientist that's very concerned about about climate change and, and addressing the climate crisis, is that they are... You know, actively stirring up this sort of market uh, uh, mayhem in Europe and using that to make the argument or allow, allowing anti-climate change, uh, you know, arguments to come out and say, "Well, the transition's not being done properly. Look what's happening now. You're, you know, you're going to freeze. You're going to, uh, you know, pay more, you know, at, you know, at for for your heating this winter, etc." And that's really concerning because we need to get away from fossil fuels uh, right. to get there, and so. You know, having more legacy infrastructure like Nord Stream 2 does nothing to that. Right. Let alone the fact the European Space Agency has released data that shows uh, the upstream portions that are feeding Nord Stream 2, the the pipelines in the Russian Federation up to the Yamal Peninsula, as being extremely methane inefficient, yes. meaning the leaking methane plumes uh, that are really harmful to the to to the climate and our our uh, ability to fight climate change, which is a key national security area. But you know, one thing at a time.
0: Yeah, no, and, and agreeing with you that the, yeah, the in the short term this does not look good, if we're in this hypothetical scenario that I painted for us here where Nord yeah. Stream 2 is a fait accompli and it's a reality and it's there in Russia 1, I'm trying to think through what are the policy options for the West to basically – if we accept Agnia's thesis, and I do – that the you know the long-term secular trends in the gas market are making it look a lot, making it much more fungible, making it look a lot more like the oil market. Yeah. Are there things we can do to expedite those trends? Um, is more LNG the answer? Is a is is a is a really serious uh, push for renewables? And where where Russia is basically nowhere, um, right. is that an answer? Uh, what are the things we can push here that, to, to to push these trends in the directions that we want to see these these trends go?
1: I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, the the biggest issue with this is, you know, you know, sorry, uh, policymakers in Washington in particular, you know, looking for an answer, don't have the levers and shouldn't. I am absolutely not endorsing uh, this, but, you know, don't have the levers to send a cargo of LNG anywhere in the world that they want. Uh, We operate on an open market, free market basis, and that's how it should be. The point is that, uh, you know, most U.S. LNG cargoes since uh, 2016, when we started exports um, have gone to South America and to Southeast Asia, and that's because of market conditions. Uh, some have gone to to um, the EU, but uh, I, I've pointed out to people uh, at at conferences, et cetera, we don't have something in this country called America Prom, right? We don't have. I can't right. <laughs> sit in government and call up uh, a company and say, "Boy, it would be great to send that cargo, you know, no matter the market conditions, to Klaipeda in Lithuania, because that would be." you know, very symbolic and, and alleviate this crisis. It just doesn't happen and it shouldn't happen. Um, I think that it's a mix of uh, of just supporting that fungibility. I think that as things uh, normalize uh, after, you know, markets and uh, supply chain issues are resolved in the coming year or two, hopefully, uh, following COVID-19's impact, um, things will get back to normal and that will be more the case. So So direct actions aside from that don't, you know, necessarily need to be taken. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of different, you know, different policies on the the energy export front, Uh, but also a more rapid, uh, um, you know, uh, deployment and proliferation of uh, what I call near-term renewables, meaning, uh, you know, solar, wind, geothermal, and um, and hydro, Um, and then continue to look for and support basic science and technology research, uh, you know, across all of our collective nations, uh, with the intellectual capital that we have in the science communities, um, to keep, uh, you know, building out our understanding and our, our technical development and project development of, uh, grid scale, uh, battery storage, um, and, and all the way to, uh, you know, future energy technologies. And this is what I started my career in as a, uh, uh as an undergraduate at the uh, University of Rochester, um, uh, fusion energy, right? So, um, uh, you know, basically harnessing the same processes that take place in uh, stellar interiors uh, in, 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 of course, including our own sun um, to cleanly harness nuclear energy uh, for, uh, you know, for for long term uh, uh, production and uh, in, in baseload. Uh, but that is still long term. And, right. and even on a no holds barred fast track, such as we saw during the Apollo program in terms of spending, it would still take a few decades for that to become a possibility. Uh, And so, you know, but the thing is, we need to keep funding these at a robust level over time to get there. We can't have market, you know, sorry, not our, um, uh, political fluctuations in our support for these technologies uh every four years in this country or or on other bases in in the EU it, it really
0: needs to be a sustained effort because that's how science is, is done right right and those are very long-term solutions in the more medium term and I agree with you we we don't have an America prom like Russia had right. a gas prom, which you can just order to do whatever you want it to do uh, our, our our energy companies are private companies but the government can create incentives. The government can create incentives, Um, and I agree with you. It would have enormous symbolism right now. Um, Anybody that is listening that could make a decision along these lines, it would have enormous uh, symbolic value. Um, and would have tangible benefits for the transatlantic relationship writ large, if we were to at least symbolically deliver some LNG to to Klaipeda in, in, in Lithuania to basically help our friends in Europe who are going through an energy crisis at the moment, at any at time when Russia is, is is basically extorting and blackmailing them in order to get Nord Stream 2 online, uh, th- we could do that. The government could create those incentives. Um, they can't dictate it, but they can create incentives.
1: Yes, but nope. again, this is, this is where um... – You know, messaging discipline on what is really going on is necessary, both uh, in terms of pushing back on Russian propaganda and those that spread it in the EU. And we've seen that over over time. Supporters of Nord Stream 2 have long said that the real reason, quote unquote, that the U.S. opposes Nord Stream 2 is not the litany of national security, strategic corruption, you know, laundry list of issues that we've discussed over the past hour. Um, which I worked on in government and uh, and uh, you know' have continued to analyze since leaving government, but rather because we simply want to sell our LNG, right? right. and And I, the Kremlin is terrified of of exactly what you say, a, a truly fungible international energy market that that they are getting away from long- term contracts and sweetheart deals and all these sort of uh, a, you know anti uh, um, uh, anti market um, considerations and and strategies that they've had as state-owned enterprises over the years. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think that's really part of it as well. I mean, it, you have to decouple these two issues because they're really not connected in the sense that, um, you know, the the concerns over Nord Stream 2 isn't about volumes. If Nord Stream 2 doesn't come online, it's not online now, it wasn't online last year and the year before and the year before. Um, there is not a net energy market that is then, you know, able to be captured, quote unquote, by the U.S. or Qatar or Australia or anyone else um, in, in that that, that it, uh, operates in the in the international LNG trade, um, because those volumes are going through Poland, Belarus, and right. Ukraine right now. But um, that's the idea of this whole project, and that's what the where the cognitive dissonance comes in is it's not aimed at relieving any market considerations other than those that are. Created by the Kremlin itself.
0: Right, right. right? It's a geopolitical project. We are bumping up against the end, Ben. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up for the week?
1: Uh, No, Brian, this has been a really great discussion. I appreciate you uh, taking time to spotlight this. As I said, this is going to be an ongoing issue, um, as it has been for the last seven years. Don't expect this to go away anytime soon, whether or not Nord Stream 2 comes online. I think all of the national security contingencies are very valid in either scenario, um, and I, I think that we're going to have—it seems every year now—with the, uh, you know, the regulatory calendar in Europe, the sanctions calendar in in the U.S. Congress, and, and uh, transatlantic policy uh, cycles themselves. Uh, there's there's an end of year start of your showdown and the yep. energy policy side, and I think we're going to see that again. So stay yeah, tuned.
0: It, it happens um, every 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 winter. So absolutely. I think we'll be, we'll be back with this to be continued, uh, maybe next time with our with our good friend Agni Agrigas. I'd, I'd love to speak with we'd Agni. I'd love to good. have her on. All right, well, that's about all we have time for today, so we'll wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Utical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor. Professor of Practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from lovely Cambridge, Massachusetts, has been Dr. Ben Benjamin Schmidt, a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University and former European Energy Security Advisor at the U.S. State Department. Thanks, Ben, for an enlightening discussion.
1: And thanks to you, the podfather of Eurasian <laughs> geopolitics, Brian Whitmore. <laughs> a true pleasure and uh, a legend in the game, let's say.
0: <laughs> Thank you. That is. That is, that is- too kind. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room and he keeps all those lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Harvard Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, get your Spotify, SoundCloud and TuneIn. And if you do, please please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility a whole lot. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.